for my people everywhere. For my people thronging 47th Street in Chicago and Lenox Avenue in New York. For my people trying to fashion a world that will hold all the people, all the faces. Graduates, the world is waiting for you and desperately needs you to rise and take control. Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and in this episode, we're going to do something a bit different. I'm going to be the guest, and we hope to share with you the backstory to a seminal experience in my life. The opening clip you just heard was from the commencement speech I gave last month when I had the honor of being asked to be the keynote speaker for the City University of New York's School of Labor and Urban Studies 2023 commencement ceremony. It was a very big deal. It's the first time I've ever been asked to do something like that. And in this episode, we hope to give some insight into kind of what shaped me in shaping that speech and in so doing to give some insight also hopefully into the cultural forces that have shaped this nation in general and certainly that have shaped one particular Black man who you tune into to hear on this podcast twice a month. And so for today's episode, as I said, I will be the guest, and I will be being interviewed by my co-host, Charlene Chang, back from her vacation. Hi, Charlene. How was your vacation? And you want to take it from here. Hey, Steve. I had a wonderful vacation. Thanks for asking. I am really looking forward to our conversation today with one of my favorite guests, which is you. And I always really enjoy when every now and then we get to have an episode where it's just me and you. And I I am really glad that we're going to be talking about uh, your commencement speech. And the just to give listeners a little bit of background, I wanted to, you know, let everyone know a little bit about CUNY's School of Labor and Urban Studies. The school located in New York City is relatively new. It was established in 2018 as an outgrowth of the Murphy Institute, which focuses on education for workers and union members. Something that I didn't didn't even know about the Institute. So cool. This school is under the larger CUNY umbrella. So, Steve, what's really interesting, I was doing a little math. I figured out that this was the school's fifth commencement, and that means you were the fifth commencement speaker ever for the school. And that's historic. That's pretty amazing. If we're a new school and you were the fifth commencement speaker. On the same day you gave your speech, the school also gave you an honorary doctoral degree. Hmm. And this part, I think, is really amazing as well, which is that the school has selected your book, How We Win the Civil War, to be the school's selected reading. And correct me if I've got this wrong, but I believe that means your book, How We Win the Civil War, is now required reading for this upcoming school year for all the students and faculty for the 23-24 school year. And so with that, I'm so excited to learn more about how you came to write your awesome speech. Um, From now, I want to call you doctor, doctoral. (laughs) First of all, how did you react? And also, did did you ever think you'd be invited to give a commencement speech? And yeah, how did it feel when you were first asked by the school? 
Well, it, uh, incredulous, I think, is the the first word is kind of like, because like we're saying, never had anything that's, you know, had that kind of honor or offer presented. And so it was came out of the blue. I do think that, you know, our friend Deepak Bhargava, who is a faculty member now at CUNY, who's an activist, he ran the Center for Community Change, which Susan was on the board of, and is a big national political, now philanthropic leader. And so he, I think, had some, you know, man behind the curtain role in all of this. But at the same time, you got to get the school and then the board trustees off yeah. to sign off on this thing, right? Yeah. And so there's that. I think probably a little bit of, you know, inadequacy. I've never done this before, right? And so, you know, and plus think about the whole doctorate, you know, like I mentioned in this piece, like my my dad is an actual doctor, medical doctor, right? <laughs> he he went to school yes. to get to right. get that title. So that was, I think, from my initial reaction. But what was also very interesting is I would tell people and just the level, you start to see what it means in society. In terms of mm-hmm. how people would respond and the level of like excitement and enthusiasm and, you know, so that, you know, I was able to, you know, take in some of that. And so, you know, I was deeply honored because it does mean something to give a commencement speech and to be a, to be a keynote speaker. And that kind of brought to mind, I remember the... um when my, you know, as you know, I'm a very political person, I've been my whole life. So I remember, so <laughs> yes, the 1976 Democratic Convention and actually, I didn't know who Barbara Jordan was at the time. She was the congresswoman from Texas. And what put her in my mind and on my awareness was my mom talking about Barbara Jordan's convention speech. She gave the keynote address and that so it wasn't even the speech as much as how it impacted my mother. And I remember my mom like reciting to me with the inflection and pride of Barbara Jordan says, I am a keynote speaker. Mm. And so that gave me some sense, too, of what that means in this world is to, to be a keynote speaker at a, um, you know, a distinguished occasion. So I've watched the recording of the entire commencement and your section a few times. And just uh, we'll talk more about that. And it's so uplifting. But I wanted to ask you first, because this is an audio medium and we don't have the visuals. How would you describe the audience and what was the audience's response to your speech? It was overwhelmingly people of color. And that's the thing about the School of Labor and Urban Studies. And Deepak pointed this out to me, went to teach there about how it's all a lot of very grassroots people. It started or and certainly in large part by many of the progressive labor unions in New York. And so it's very working class and down to earth. And attached to that, right, are people who have had a lot of the challenges that working class people have in a capitalist country. And so that feeling was very much there of family, people who have struggled to get where they are, of families who are celebrating, overcoming the obstacles to be where they are. So I felt a responsibility to try to, you know, rise to and honor the moment. And I also, you know, it's like I say, overwhelming people of color, it's also incredibly supported and lifted up. And so in a lot of ways, you know, people of color are very, very engaged and supportive audiences, right? In the Black church, this thing about call and response, and people are supportive. And I remember I was in the school board in San Francisco in the 90s, and I was supposed to go to, to a church where I was going to do an announcement about a program or event we were having or something. And I was going to, in my head, I was going to stand up, give this announcement, and then, you know, that would be that. And then the minister says, uh, so you ready to speak for 45 minutes? And I was like, my mother, what? <laughs> <laughs> But the crowd was so supportive, right? I mean, the 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 people there in the church, it's like they're nodding and they're there with you and whatnot. So I spoke for an hour, right, at that event, right? So, 
but we didn't have we did not have that opportunity or did that we were forced to have more discipline which is a good thing for this event right they had a very tight 10 minute window the overall event let's uh, commencement was very packed I mean I saw the you know the, the the script for the whole event people had one minute speeches and two minutes and one minute so really had to have it as tight as possible and I did wind up doing 17 drafts of the speech to get it down to just under 10 minutes now just and it it really showed in terms of how you know tight it was in ter- it just you packed so much in a relatively short amount of time i just want to say also for the listeners the audience what i was struck about steve with the audience when you think about a college commencement or graduation ceremony is the range of um ages mm-hmm. so feel I, I felt uh what was special maybe compared to the commencements that I've personally been part of or the other ones that you've seen from other colleges. It wasn't just young people. It was people that just really seemed to span many ages. And you can just see that they were probably in different stages of their life. Um, so that was, I thought, really inspiring and moving. Yeah, very, very much so. It was not just, you know, 95% 22-year-olds, right, who were just getting out mm-hmm. to the world. So it was very much people who have been in the world and living and then have made the decision and and shown the sacrifice and discipline while being having you know careers and jobs to go back to school and, and get the degree yeah definitely just so folks know you your speech is about 10 minutes and we will be linking that in the show notes so they can watch the actual video of it and like i said in that short amount of time you covered a lot of ground what i was really struck by is you were able to weave in a lot of history and then you also touched on different topics and references, including literary references. You talked about labor rights organizers, Arizona, voting rights work. You talked about Susan and Deepak and just arts and culture overall. You you really were able to weave all of that together, I thought just really beautifully. And you delivered what I'd like to say is in the beginning, it caught me off guard because I didn't get to see your speech. You know, you were working on it in I was it was almost like a surprise for you know even those of us on the team for me to get to see it in live. I actually watched it live because it was live streamed. And you really set the tone in the beginning with this kind of spoken word performance, which really is like caught me off guard and you did it so beautifully. It was like, was I was like wow. Yeah. And it was uh just so beautifully done. And I just thought, uh, I think it was really perfect for the audience and perfect for when you're on stage giving commencement speech, it is a type of performance and you have, you're on the, you know, at the podium. So how did you go about deciding what to include, what not to include, and even where to start when you were formulating the speech or by the time you got to the 17th draft? Right. I think that was the night before I got to the 17th draft. Um, <laughs> So I mean, luckily, you know, essentially I've been actually listening to a lot of different podcasts. Slate does this podcast called Working, and it's uh, all about the craft of creating art. And mm. so it's interesting to hear other people talk about their processes. And there's, you know, it can go any number of different ways and nothing is certainly guaranteed to come to you. And it's frequently you know, quite uh, laborious. But fortunately, the, the spine of the speech came, just kind of just came to me um, about a month before and then I, st- I just kept whittling it down, whittling it down from there. And the thing about the the time limit and then the disciplines it really does force you to be very exacting about every sentence, every word. We need this, say this word. I mean, what are we really trying to accomplish? And it brought to mind, um, I think when I was in high school, it was probably a 
famous quote, and you should probably find out who said it, but the word, the quote has always stuck with me, that poetry is the best possible words in the best possible order. Mm-hmm. And so I was really trying to go for that. So that was, I think, a you know, a, a, a big part of it. And then in terms of the what came to me in terms of the core and the message of it and the the structure, right? So, you know, so I thought, you know, obviously, you know, trying to adjust, you know, this year to being in the world without Susan and moving forward and navigating, you know, grief and loss and 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 setting the stage for, you know, the next chapter of one's life. I become surprisingly drawn to art. And um my therapist is a whole thing, which I don't fully understand yet, but I'll ask her again tomorrow in terms of somehow it's part of my grieving process also. Um, but I really have gotten drawn to art. And I just want to give a quick actually shout out to my running buddy, friend Erin, who was an art history major. She's worked in art galleries her whole professional life, and she's extremely progressive politically. And so she came over to support me earlier in the year. And I started talking about art. And so she really helped to give me a roadmap about how to understand. I was saying that I wanted to be connected to African-American art, and I wanted that to be more in the house, et cetera. And then she was all saying, well, you should, you know, participate in art auctions um, and kind of figure out what you actually want to do and sent me lots of different um, examples. And then she connected me up with this art gallery in New York, Swan Gallery, which has an African-American art department that was started because the one of the uh, members of the gallery was inspired by Obama's campaign back in 07 and 08, and that led them to create an African-American art department. And so I was able to see that, and I really just quite surprisingly got into looking at all these different art pieces and thinking about them and how they would relate and how what you know spoke to me. And then in that process, I was spending like hours on the website looking at all these different pieces and whatnot. And that in that process, I came across this painting by Barbara Jones Hogu. And that painting and its title in particular unlocked something deep within me. Wow, that I, I had no idea. This is literally my first time hearing this backstory. And uh, it's just also moving. And for you to have a concrete personal story and illustration of how art heals, first of all, mm. is what's coming to me. The healing power of art. We hear we we hear, sometimes hear that phrase, but we don't think of it literally. And uh you are literally, in my opinion, finding healing through art through the art of this particular gallery that has this connection to Obama Mm -hmm. and his campaign. It's like, I I don't, you can't even imagine that until you've lived it. And it's like, um, yeah. And then the stars uh, further aligning. All the dots connecting. Right. I was, my friend was like, well, you should, you should, if you can go look at the art right now was in, it was in New York and I was just happening to have a trip to New York shortly before the auction. And then our niece, Leah Sandler, was graduating from Barnard in New York. And so she came to the art gallery with me and we looked at different pieces together. So in terms of the, you know, the Susan, the family connection, all of that together, it was very, very powerful. But as happy as this day is, the sad truth is that I'm also here without my life partner, Susan Sandler, who completed her journey on this earth in December after living for six years and three months with cancer. As I've tried to process my grief and chart my way forward, I've turned to art and culture for inspiration. And I recently came across a painting by Barbara Jones Hogu that captured my imagination. The painting is called Rise and Take Control, and it is inspired by the epic 1942 Margaret Walker poem, 
for my people, which ends with the words, rise and take control. So I want to talk a little bit more about your reference to this particular piece of artwork, Rise and Take Control by Barbara Jones Hogu. It's a beautiful piece. Were you familiar at all with her work before? No, I was familiar with the Black arts movement. I mean, I was an African-American studies major in college. Uh, It was really the, I was, you know, I like to say that I'm quite literally a child of the civil rights movement, right? I think I've talked before about how the white owners of the home that that I grew up in would not sell the house to my parents because they were black back in 1964. And my mom had all these books around the house of Martin Martin Luther King. And, and, you know, I read all the biographies of Martin Luther King, the elementary school library. And then when I went to college, right, it's very much in terms of that connection and then the political uh, manifestations of it, you know, Black Student Union, Free South African Movement, activism, People may or may not have heard me make one or two references to the uh, Jackson presidential campaigns and the Rainbow Coalition. So in that journey, I knew about the Black Arts Movement, which was a big deal in the late 60s, early 70s in particular. So people like Amiri Baraka, um, whose son, Roz, became the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. And then Sonia Sanchez, poets, there's a whole grouping of like Black Arts Movement poets. So I knew about those people. But I didn't know about um, Barbara Jones Hogan. And so that was a new experience to me. And this, the further tied all together, that painting does now hang in my house in the room that I spend the most time in. And I have the drawing that she made, the sketch upon which she made the, made the painting itself. So I did not know her. And so what resonated was the title in particular, and the piece itself is very powerful, but with the whole additional level, I was like, wait, rise and take control. I know that phrase. And I had not thought about this. It was a poem by uh, Margaret Walker from 1942 and mm. it's, uh, called For My People. And it immediately came back to me. And I was talking to my therapist and I was all like, oh, and I mean, this art. And I saw this painting and it's For My People. So I started reciting to her, For My People Everywhere, singing their slave songs repeatedly, their dirges and their ditties and their blues and jubilees. And it just came rushing back to me. And that's where I was like, okay, this is what I should anchor this whole speech around. And so that was the connection and, and, and the inspiration. Yeah, I was blown away by your rendition of the poem and just so appreciative of you giving the audience and people like me insight to the poem. Many of them maybe already knew about it, but I personally didn't. So I wanted to play a short clip first of Margaret Walker, so we can hear her read the poem. For all my people lending their strength to the years, to the gone years, and the now years, and the maybe years. Washing, ironing, cooking, scrubbing, sewing, mending, hoeing, plowing, digging, planting, pruning, patching, dragging along, never gaining, never reaping, never knowing, and never understanding. And Steve, can you share a little more about who Margaret Walker was and what drew you to that particular poem? Yeah, so she was a very significant Black woman poet, um, like I was saying, in the 1940s. And that was a whole thing, too, about the, maybe that's part of the, I think, the resonance. I mean, you confront the realities, mortality, trying to figure out how to, what goes on and what doesn't go on. And 80 years later, this woman's poem is still being recited. I, mean, I went down our YouTube rabbit hole of watching people perform this poem just recently. Kids in elementary school. I mean, it's very deep in the African-American culture. 
And so I think for me in particular, it was the rhythm and the cadence of the poem were quite powerful to me. So you had that. And I realized, making me realize that I have this thing about, well, not just, I mean, I sing long sentences that I'll, but it's more about, there's a, it's almost like an upending of the traditions of the communication form because sentences aren't supposed to be that long, right? Noun, mm-hmm. verb, right? But, and so to have these very long sentences that are illuminating and build momentum has an additional power, particularly when it's in a cultural connection. So when I was in elementary school, so I say my mom had all these books about Martin Luther King around the house. And so we had one of these books. I think that was one, that was one called Where We Go From Here. And it has in it the letter from a Birmingham jail. And I still can't believe I actually did this, but there is this long sentence in that letter that so spoke to me that I wrote it out by hand. This is before cell phones. You could take a picture of things and whatnot. And I put it in a little plastic bag to keep it, to, to preserve it. And it really, it gets to the essence of why we can't wait. That's, uh, uh, and that was the title of that book and that they had there. And that he goes on, you know, he has this whole thing. I actually read the whole thing, but he talks about says, I can read the whole thing, but he says, when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your brothers, sisters and brothers at whim, when you have hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill you, when you have seen the vast majority of 20 million Negro brothers smothered in an airtight cage, he goes on and on like that and concluding mm. with, then you will understand why it's difficult to wait. And mm. so the force of that, you know, again, struck me when I was, you know, in elementary school, that type of a thing. And the poem is a similar type of a thing. And it's actually a fairly long poem. Uh, it's part of the art. So I have on my wall, I have the Barbara Jones Hogu piece. And then it's flanked on one side by the sketch. And then the other side is flanked by uh, the poem itself or an excerpt from the poem because it's too long to put on one you know, actual thing. But it has that, mm. that, not just the rhythm and the melody, which it does, but it has this gathering force and confidence and impact. And that I think that there's a particular, again, 1942, when she wrote this, you know, 13 years before Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, there's a confidence and a celebration that is deeply resonant for people of color to be able to go on and on and say, yes, you know, by people everywhere, ironing, washing, gardening, you know, that whole type of a piece, it, just and I, the way that you know it struck a chord is I hadn't really thought about it much since college in the 80s. But when I saw that painting, mm. it immediately came right back to me. Well, yeah, I just what came to me from hearing your rendition of it and then hers, and you really channeled that the emotions and kind of gave your own flavor of the style of the the poem and the way that she read it, that it came, what came to me was this sort of, that it's, it feels like an incantation, mm. right? And almost meditative, but it really, like you said, the rhythm and the cadence really draw you in. And what it reminded me of, what it reminded me of is also the power of really just thinking about the roots of the oral tradition mm. of African culture mm-hmm. and how we, we all have to remember that African-American culture is American culture. It's so deeply rooted in our culture. So for example, the, the, w- the way that, you know, jazz 
is has that kind of incantation, has that right. type of cadence. Yeah. And that's why beat poetry has its roots in oral, I believe, you know, African yeah. um, oral traditions, that kind of rhythm. There's a feeling of storytelling. And when you were reading it, uh, it's clearly in like your blood. You're, you're, I believe mm. you were channeling ancestors. And I, mm. I do, I personally believe that we mm. all have the ability to conjure up and tap into the art forms and the the rhythms of our ancestors, even if we never got to meet them. That's my personal belief system, or I'd like to believe. I think there's something really mysterious and magical that we don't all, nobody knows for sure, but there are things that you can't explain where why we feel moved the way we do by certain art forms. And so when you turned on that switch and you were up there reading your uh, that part of the poem, I was like, oh my God, Steve has a beat poet in a word. Like he's, you know, <laughs> you are like a jazz musician, spoken word poet. And also I I got images of, of course, like, you know, the the preacher at the pulpit, the sermon of a in a black church, that that kind of incantatory cadence way of delivering a speech and using the spoken word form to move people emotionally beyond even just what the words themselves are saying, but the combination of the sound, the rhythm, and the words. So with that, I want to share that part of your speech for listeners now, and we can talk about it some more. For my people everywhere, singing their slave songs repeatedly, their dirges and their ditties and their blues and jubilees. For my people, Washing, ironing, cooking, scrubbing, sewing, mending, hoeing, plowing, digging, planting, pruning, patching, dragging along, never gaining, never reaping, never knowing, and never understanding. For my people, standing, staring, trying to fashion a world that will hold all the people, all the faces. Let a new earth rise. Let another world be born. Let the martial songs be written. Let the dirges disappear. Let my people now rise and take control. Okay, Steve. So even as I was watching you deliver that part of the speech, I was thinking, where did Steve learn how to do that? And what do you feel like you, you know, were channeling and what inspired you to deliver those lines from that poem in that way? Well, it's funny, Charlene, is that you have that in you too. And <laughs> in terms of the further backstory for our audience, that is actually uh, why I asked you to be the co-host of the podcast. Right? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Our, our partnership, right, had been over the written word, right? We mm -hmm. met in that context. We wrote, you know, Brown is the New White. And then when uh, Susan and I went to see you read spoken word at a bookstore in the Mission District in San Francisco, and there you are wearing your T-shirt saying Jersey girl and being <laughs> quite expressive and demonstrative in your delivery. And I was all like, oh, and I was like, I think she'd be a good podcast host. Uh... So there's a little bit of that. So I think for me, I first encountered spoken word as art in college. Um, but as you mentioned, I, mean, I grew up in the black church. My grandfather was a minister of an A.R. Cochran, Glenville Church of God. Mm. And there was this also this dynamic of the it's spoken word into music and how these things transition. My grandfather would end many of the sermons launching into the song, the old time religion. Give me that old time religion. And then the whole audience joins in and then we make the transition. And then a similar type of you know interplay, right? When the 
there was that, you know, racist shooting in South Carolina when Obama was president. He went to speak at the church and he ends his speech and he starts launching into singing Amazing Grace. And then the whole crowd mm-hmm. joins him. So there's this interplay of how the art and whatnot uh, and the words come together. And then I think in particular for me, I saw it in college. I was you know, very involved with the Black Student Union and the struggles for you know, racial justice and education reform. And we brought many speakers and artists uh, to campus. And so one of them was the poet, Sonia Sanchez. She was the 1986 Malcolm X speaker that we brought to speak at Stanford. And actually, I recently found the book. She had a book of poetry called I've Been a Woman, in terms of all these connections. I had forgotten since the 1980s that she had inscribed this book, right? She inscribes it, uh, Brother Steve, please do realize your dream of writing. We need your young words and love and struggle, Sonia Sanchez. And so, you know, that's 86, right? And so then carrying this, so it was when I, when she spoke at Stanford, she really manifested, not just at Stanford, when she would speak, she would manifest and demonstrate poetry um, as, you know, in a very powerful and provocative, you know, performance style of speaking. And that uh, certainly planted a seed that has stayed with me my whole life. I love that story. And I, I feel like when she inscribed those and gave you that that message or wrote that for you, it just set everything in motion. And I'd like to think that she played a part in your, mm-hmm. your journey as a writer. Let's play a little clip from Sonia Sanchez's middle passage to give everyone an idea of you know what you're referring to. And for anyone who maybe hasn't ever heard her perform before, let's hear from her. It was, it was the coming across the ocean that was bad. It was the coming, the coming that was bad. It, 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 it was the packing, the packing, the packing, the packing all of such in ships that was bad. It was the packing, the packing, the packing, the packing, the crossing, the coming, the coming, the crossing, the coming, the crossing, the crossing that was bad. Steve, in your speech, you listed examples of a lot of people who have risen up and taken control from Dolores Huerta to Cesar Chavez to John Laredo to Stacey Abrams. I wanted to play that clip. So what does rising and taking control look like? Who can we emulate in that quest? Rising and taking control looks like Dolores Huerta, joining with her sisters and brothers, picking grapes under a sweltering sun to form a strong farm workers union that combined the labor struggle with the racial justice struggle of Latinos and Filipinos into a movement powerful enough to compel multinational corporations to share the wealth with the people who created that wealth in the first place. Rising and taking control looks like Dolores working with Cesar Chavez to establish a union headquarters in the mountains of California, where an Arizona teenager named John Laredo would go to learn at the knee of the organizing greats and then take that knowledge back to Arizona, where he helped catalyze the coalition that registered half a million people of color to vote in a manifestation of the power that Jesse Jackson used to talk about when he said the hands that once picked cotton and grapes can now pick presidents. And those new voters in Arizona turned out in historic numbers to elect Joe Biden. And on his first day as president, Biden placed the bust of Cesar Chavez in the Oval Office. Why was it important for you to include these folks as examples? Well, it was a commencement. And so you want to try to inspire people, 
right? And so there's that, trying to think about how do you best go about doing that? And I think particularly as people who are heading out onto new chapters of their lives coming out of a commencement, you want to give them examples and examples that can be inspirational. And as we were talking about, it was a very much of a multiracial working class crowd of graduates. And so wanted them to see people who were like them who had gone on to make an impact and to change the world. And it was, a, you know, saying it was a school of labor. And so I wanted to also lift up and choose examples of people who came out of that tradition and who had gone on to actually change the country. And so that was the thinking and the framework, you know, very much in that context, right? So it's the, one of the examples we use in the book is what's happened in Arizona over the past decade in terms of transforming it from a Confederate bastion into a more progressive place as elected Democrats in each of the elections since uh, the past three uh, cycles. And one of the great main leaders of that was John Laredo. We feature him in the book, you know, big, you know major leader and ally and uh, used to be a minority leader in the in the state Senate. And John learned from Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta from the United Farm Workers. So I wanted to try to tie all those pieces together so people could see the through line of the work that Latino and Latina leaders, union activists, and what how that had over the years and over the decades resulted in uh, upending and transforming uh, politics within this country. You also include in your speech mention of Deepak and Carol Tolan. And I could hear you getting emotional during that part because you did talk about how Deepak was sh showing up as a, a longtime friend to you and Susan during challenging times. Uh, and it, it definitely moved me and made me emotional too. I wanted to share that part right now. Rising and taking control looks like Deepak Bhargava, graduating from college and turning down lucrative job offers to go do the work of organizing immigrants and poor people into a powerful political movement where he pushed the White House and top congressional leaders to advance economic justice policies. And it looks like Deepak becoming a distinguished lecturer and helping to create a leadership program at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. And it also looks like Deepak demonstrating solidarity forever as he takes those values with him as he ascends to the highest levels of philanthropy in this country. <laughs> Rising and taking control is also about people and not just power. It's about prioritizing relationships and showing up and being there for one another. It's the kind of thing that Deepak did. He made the time to call my wife every single Friday at five o'clock for the last year of her life. It's the kind of example set by Carol Tolan, a progressive white woman from New York, who not only donated money to Stacey Abrams' work long before Stacey became famous, but after Stacey fell agonizingly short in 2018, Carol sent her flowers every week for two years to show that she cared about her and was thinking of her. So, Steve, I'm sure you were thinking of Susan while you were writing the speech and possibly when you were up there. I know that for me, when I was watching you deliver that speech in real time, I couldn't help but imagine her watching. And I wanted to ask you what you think she would have thought about your speech and seeing you on that stage. Well, as I mentioned, Leah was there, our niece. So that was very important in that in terms of the next generation of, you know, Leah very much is uh, carrying on the tradition of, you know, frankly, a you know, white woman of privilege standing and fighting for justice and racial justice and economic justice. And so we're building and strengthening our relationship, you know, post 
you know, Susan's presence. And so it was very meaningful for me that she was there. And so, you know, in terms of that legacy that Susan and I had had, as well as the partnership and the hope to be able to partner with Leah um, going forward in terms of carrying on that mission, you know, and then Susan wanted, um, you know, I don't know if she shared here or not, but, you know, she, she wrote me a letter and she talked about, you know, wanting me to thrive. And she has this phrase in there of uh, wanting, wishing me loving, thriving fellowship. Mm. And Deepak and Harry, so much personified that, right? So for them both to be there, like we would vacation with them, went snorkeling with them in Hawaii and whatnot. And then, you know, my friend, my college friend, Ingrid Nava, was, you know, she works uh, labor unions in, in New York. Um, she came there as well. And so it is this thing about, I want to be, and I think what Susan wanted for me, because she understood best how, you know, I would need to be able to be successful and effective. I want to be rooted in a setting of loving, thriving fellowship so I can do my best work and try to carry on the shared mission, right, to which we devoted, you know, 32 years. And so that's the other thing, though, about that on, an honorary doctor. And I used to mock honorary doctorates uh, until I got one, right? <laughs> <laughs> funny, how that, how, funny how that works. Yes, right. And so... it's awesome. But it's like, well, again, having a father who went to actual medical schools, so we could actually treat people. But it is actually honoring a lifetime of work. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that's the other aspect of it, right? Is that, you know, uh, 32 years of my adult lifetime or my lifetime, you know, in, was in partnership with Susan. And so there was this element of honoring our collective life work. And so I feel like both accepting it for her was part of it. And I think in terms of delivering, I wanted to live up to her standards, which are actually much higher than mine. And so I think that was all, all present with me in that, in that, on that day. I am just really just mulling over and loving this phrase that you just said, which is loving, thriving fellowship. Those words, I don't think I've heard them combined together like that. And I think mm -hmm. it really defines, I think it does define much of what I've experienced through observing your relationship with Susan and how the two of you built, you know, built change in this world, in our country and beyond and relationships and how you both treat people. Just this, the loving, thriving fellowship is, it's just beautiful. I want to put that on a sign and like have it painted on a piece of wood and putting uh, put in my room to remember. Yeah. Well, that, I think it should be for yeah, everybody. Right. Yeah, and those were quite yeah. literally Susan's parting words to me. Right. Oh. But I think in terms of all of us, right. That mm. you want to be surrounded by people who you're close to, who love you, you love them. And that is what enables you to thrive is in working in loving, thriving fellowship. And I think it's something that we can all take with us. I also think it's a very distilled, deceptively simple set of words to live by and remember in in a time where it can feel very overwhelming, where mm -hmm. everything feels like it has to be very big or it can feel divisive. Um, obviously, you know, if we just talk about politically what's happening in this country, and when you just look at the news and social media, you think, well, what what can I do? How should I go about my days and not feel overwhelmed by uh, what feels heavy and negative? And if 
we just focus on remembering that we also have the ability to just continue building within our own communities and circles um, to continue loving, to keep continue thriving for you know and supporting one another. If we could all just do that, uh, the world would be a better place. So again, great job on your first commencement speech. I am hoping it will be the first of many. I'm going to put that intention out there. You seem to have a real knack for it. You have really important messages to impart and beautiful ways of packaging it and delivering it. And so, hey, check out the speech. If you y'all know people, you know, coming up to different institutions who want to have a commencement speaker, I'm 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 all for letting people know that Steve, you did a great job. And I I really just think you I really think you moved and recognized who this audience was and you gave them a really inspiring uplifting speech in a in a kind of entertaining you know engaging way that is uh, not easy to do i mean h- how many speeches are make people just kind of st- doze off and yours mm-hmm. definitely didn't you people were um applauding at the end uh definitely feeling it and i i just really thought you did a fantastic job and i want to you know thank you and really the whole the whole team, old Marston Keller team, for helping to conceptualize and put together this episode because as you know, the very as we've discussed, important and deep and seminal experience in my life. But I was far too close to it to figure out how to share it with people. But hopefully, there's been some insights and reflections from my particular experience that can be more broadly um, illuminating for other people. So I want to thank the whole team for helping to pull this episode together and construct it. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you, you for having me. Fa- fabulous. <laughs> we hope you'll come on again. <laughs> and I want to thank everybody for listening today to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Fola Onifade and April Elkir recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. We hope all of you will rise and take control. 